am Mixed Pucks or Kia, your choice. And uh, today I am here with our our special guest, Jack Durock Danner. And we're going to be talking about all kinds of fun stuff, but specifically we're going to be talking about autism, uh, neurodivergency, sexuality, and gender. And I am really, really excited to have Jack here. Hi, Jack. Hi. So Jack, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so I'm an autism, uh, autistic sex educator. Um, I've been working as an autism advocate for about four years, and I've been working as a sex educator for about two or three years. Um, and I primarily focus on the intersection of autism and human sexuality, primarily with a focus on the way the nervous system informs both uh, human sexuality and also autism. So that's just in a nutshell. <laughs> which I think there's just really not a lot of folks having these conversations. Um, Jack and I met doing uh, a SAR and we've done a couple together, I think so far. Um, and SAR is a sexual, was it sexual attitude reassessment? Yes, got it. Um, and I have attended a lot of these and that's actually kind of how I, that's how I got connected to um, so many people that, um, we've had on our show and we'll be continuing to have on our show. And uh, it's, it's pretty life-changing. Um, it, it has been for me, but also it's really fascinating to get to talk to folks that are at these different intersections and who are having these conversations so that, you know, budding sex educators and sex therapists have, um, have an opportunity to work through some of their biases, conscious and unconscious um, has been really huge. And, and sometimes to figure out whether or not this is even the job they really should be doing. Uh, Cause there are a lot of folks that think that this is a thing that they should be doing and they really shouldn't be doing it. So um, I just want to jump in, um, get into it. Can you tell us what autism is? Um, so the way, so there's a couple different answers to this. So there's the way the DSM and a lot of the way the medical and psychiatric profession frame autism, which is usually from a deficit-based behavioralist approach, where it's, you know, well, we know someone has autism because they have quote-unquote social deficits. Um, I'll get to that in just a minute. Language deficits and they show ritual or repetitive movements. So what you wind up having is this kind of like circular logic of like, well, why does this person flap? Well, because they have autism. Well, how do we know they have autism? Well, because they're flapping. But that doesn't really, you know, that doesn't really answer the question of why. It just sort of creates this like external checklist of, well, we've checked all these boxes. Now let's just quote unquote fix the problem. Um, from my own experience and from the research I've done, both as an autism advocate and also because I used to work as a massage therapist, so I have some experience and training in the body work world, um, I would argue that a core feature of autism is actually um, a, a propensity to dis um, propensity to dysregulation or a nervous system that's more sensitive to stressors. Um, I can a more, let's see, oh, there it is. So a more formalized definition um, would be 
um, that, let's see, due to underlying neurology or just the way our brains are wired, um, autistic individuals are unusually vulnerable to everyday emotional and physiological challenges. And this is not, and I, the thing is, I don't think this has to mean then that you're stuck at wherever you are. I think everyone has an opportunity for growth and for change. I think the problem is that when we say, oh, everyone needs to talk in the same way and everyone needs to interact with the world the same way. And when we hold people to really rigid standards and we don't give space for neurodiversity or any form of diversity, really, that's when we start seeing treatment and intervention goals that are less about quality of life and asking the question why, and more about, well, how do we get you as close as possible to a very specific definition of normal that no one has really unpacked? Because that's the other thing is that a lot of times when we talk about autism, we're like, well, there's autism and then there's neurotypical. But what is typical? Who's defining typical? And then there's the piece of, well, if most of the people writing and defining typical are often from a similar racial background, well, that's a very narrow slice of life. <laughs> and we know that medicine and psychiatry have, you know, like every other major institution in America, a racism problem. There's a lack of diversity, a lack of representation for other cultures. And very often when we talk about autism, we're moving from this assumption that there's a normal and that autism is not normal. But again, what is normal? So I don't really, f you know, that's, um, so yeah, there's a really depends on how you define autism. It really depends on the framework in which you're just asking a lot of these questions. Which makes a lot of sense. We talk about what you talked about in terms of what is uh, like neurotypical um, and then the folks that are writing these things. I, I think about this a lot uh, in terms of the, the you know, what is, what is the goalpost? Of what is the, the hallmark or the marker of, of uh, what is typical? And, you know, it's real cis het and real white and real heteronormative. Um, so if this is the framework in which we're looking at what is typical, well, we see a lot of deviation from what is typical in so many, in so many different facets of our life. Again, intersectionality, right? So if the people making the rules of what is neurotypical are folks that are cis, het, white, majority male presenting individuals, then we end up with an extremely rigid view of what is air quotes normal. And when we start, when folks are marginalized, we see we tend to see a lot more um, mental health issues for folks when they start hitting these different marginalizations. And if you have multiple marginalizations, some of your mental health issues could be stemmed from the fact that society is telling you that you're completely wrong, mm -hmm. that you're not meeting these neurotypical standards that again, are a very rigid view. I think that's very fascinating. And I also think it's, um, I am a parent of a, of a, of a autistic child and it took five years to get that diagnosis. And I hit every single wall that you possibly could. And I think it was because mostly because of how I looked more than anything, right? Your kid just has a behavioral problem. You mm -hmm. should spank them more. 
you know, you're, you know, you're, you're, you know, it's your kid is spirited. That was one of the first phrasing that was used. Your kid is spirited. You, you, so you want me to crush their spirit? I'm very confused. What does that mean? What does that tell me? What am I supposed to do from there? Um, we got kicked out of co-ops and daycares and schools. And it took five years to finally get that diagnosis. And it was definitely treated by, by folks as like a deficiency on, on his part mm-hmm. that I was going to have to help him make up all those things so that he could live a happy, normal life. And I'm like, but you're talking to someone who's also neurodivergent. So I, I, no, like, (laughs) I don't see my kid as deficient. Just tell me what he, what's going on so I can figure out what to do to help him. Um, But I think that's very fascinating. When were, uh, do you mind if I ask when you were diagnosed? Um, so I wasn't diagnosed with autism until a couple years ago, but I was diagnosed with a whole grab bag of other things when I was a kid. Because so the thing was, my dad was the youngest of three and never babysat. And my mom was an only child who also never really babysat or hung out with kids. So when they had kids, they weren't really I mean, they had a general sense of like typical development because they read some books. But this was also the late 80s. So our understanding of autism and child development has changed drastically since the 80s. And so, I mean, the there was some like a little bit of concern, but no one was really that concerned until I was three and they enrolled me in um, pre-K. And then the teachers were like, yeah, this kid has a number of problems. Like my mom describes walking into a room just like full of like expert, like uh, doctors and like the um, my teacher and everyone was like, yeah, here's just a list of all the ways that we're concerned about your kid. Like they don't have any fine motor. They're not playing with the other children like we expect children to play. And so after several years, the diagnoses I got were um, ADD, um, dyslexia, dysgraphia. Um, And so there was a lot of work around like the dysgraphia and the fine motor piece. Um, I was put on Ritalin at uh, six and Zoloft at 10. Uh, I was diagnosed with three anxiety disorders when I was 10. which is unusual because at least two of them are more commonly diagnosed in like teenagers or young adults. Um, Just a generalized anxiety, panic disorder, um, and social anxiety. Um, And so it was like, you know, a lot of AFAB individuals or assigned female at birth individuals are also get this experience. Either they're not diagnosed with anything as children, or they're often misdiagnosed as ADHD or bipolar. And it's not until they get older that they're like, oh, wait, I might actually be autistic. Because especially in the 90s, everyone's assumption was that autism was a white cis male child disorder. There was still not a lot of cultural or just general awareness of how it presents in different cultural populations that are not cis white men. So that's why to this day, a lot of research is still predominantly about children, specifically cis white children. Although now that's changing because they're like, oh wait, all these children were not actually cis <laughs> this whole time. They were actually some degree of gender variant and no one was really bothering to look into it or ask until, yeah, relatively recently. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty wild because 
in terms of like my understanding of of autism was very very was very very specific and it was like you know I suspected that my child had autism fairly early and folks are just like why why do you think that I'm like I don't know I just know I can't tell you I just know my kid uh like my my kid didn't my kid didn't talk until they were two, but I also didn't talk until I was two. So that wasn't, that wasn't the marker for me. It was just, there was just something there. Um, I once, once was told my son has selective hearing and I'm like, cool. I'm like, but he, he doesn't. And they're like, no, he hears everything that you say. And I'm like, so there's just a lack of acknowledgement. They're like, he's acknowledging in his own way. And now I know now I know that that was that was that was definitely a hallmark of of it in some ways. But at the time, they were just like your kid, you know, your kid just has selective hearing, and that was just kind of I was supposed to just leave it at that. Um, and then my son really got into trains. This is a very stereotypical, you know, thing. But like, I was just like, no, no, y'all, like, y'all, he's into them. You don't under like he's into it and they're like yeah no 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 but your kid is really social and like really friendly and like very approachable I'm like okay and my son is very verbal so there was this a lot of this a lot of these doors being closed in my face and again I couldn't I couldn't really like be like this is why my child is autistic I was just like my child is neurodiverse in some way and it wasn't until he was probably it was about six or seven when we first got the diagnosis of like anxiety because he's very anxious. It's hard for him to make a choice sometimes really hard. And so, um, and then a lot of those, a lot of the behaviors that we saw were really centered around like overstimulation too much, too many things happening, too many choices, too many decisions and too many what ifs. Um, and so he would become paralyzed with the what ifs. And then if he got kind of pushed in one direction or the other, we'd have these um, emotional outbursts that could be violent. Um, and I think that when, um, when we start looking at race and things like that, because my child is, my child is biracial, but he's, he's, he's black. Um, the, we got more, more intervention and I put air quotes around intervention because he was black and because it was physical. Um, and so, but yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely really interesting to see, you know, my kid was born in like 2010, you know, so like where we're at from like, you know, like in the eighties to where we're at now is like leaps and bounds, um, but still lacking. And then what you talked about in terms of like AFAB individuals being, um, misdiagnosed or not diagnosed correctly, um, I have mentioned here a few times that I am, I am neurodiverse. I have a, a borderline personality disorder. I was mis misdiagnosed with everything under the sun. Um, but I had, we, I was diagnosed with uh, bipolar disorder for years. And it wasn't until I got the right psychiatrist who happened to be POC where they were just like, no, no, this can't be fixed with just you taking a pill and talking to someone. This is the way that your brain is wired. Um, like, there's a little bit of like, I'm not sure if you've experienced this. I was, I was like really relieved to know that like, 
it wasn't all in my head, but it was actually in my head, you know, like was really, but also really fucking angry at the same time. I'm not sure if you experienced that or not, but I was kind of, it was like relief and anger. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember as a kid, so I mean, I remember, so I was always told as a kid that I just needed a little more help than the other kids. But I was also like, other children are not spending the bulk of their after school hours moving to different doctors. And I had this laundry list of people who were helping me with a variety of motor, math, and language and social um, skills. And so when I was 18, I, you know, I was legally able to get access to my medical records. And that's when I found like, um, so they used to have this term nonverbal learning disorder that's effectively, you know, and from what I've last read, pretty much, you know, autism. I mean, nowadays I probably, like, and I actually did um, when I, I called uh, the, cause I, let's see, it was Texas Children's Hospital, um, the speech language pathologist that I saw there. I saw her twice a year for a full day of cognitive testing from four to eight. Um, and then from eight to 18, I was seeing, I only went once a year to see her, but when I called her and I said, like, would I have received a diagnosis of autism like today? She said like, yeah, probably. But I mean, at the time it just was not really on our radar because you were verbal when you wanted to be, and you were social when you wanted to be. And because you seemed empathic and warm, it just didn't seem like autism would fit. Um, and so, and I think that that experience, like, I did feel really angry because as a child, I knew I was different. I knew that I wasn't like the other kids and I had no language or vocabulary to really articulate that. And I think that sometimes parents really want to emphasize the like whole, oh, no, you're just like the other kids. There's nothing wrong. But kids know when they're different and being told that, no, no, everything is fine is honestly like a kind of gaslighting because you're basically telling the child that their perception, you're overriding it, despite the fact that their perception isn't wrong. I, I think there are ways to talk to kids in a developmentally appropriate way about diagnoses and all these other things. But a lot of times parents just don't know how to navigate those conversations. They don't want their children to feel they're less than, they don't want their children to give up or feel like failures. So then they obscure or hide medical and psychiatric information from them. And then you just wind up with a really pissed off teenager who eventually becomes a pissed off adult a lot of the time. Cause there is still that residual anger of, I didn't get the help I need, and I was actively being told a semi-lie. So, and that kind of also erodes your trust and authority figures in general, because then you feel like, well, how can I really trust what a doctor tells me if for years I felt that doctors weren't being fully honest? So, yeah, I definitely understand that. Yeah, I tell folks embrace that fucking anger. <laughs> and... and um... I mean, I think that having to be an advocate for myself or my own mental health throughout the years has been like really tough because um, they're like, oh, but like you shower, you you groom, you take care of yourself. And I'm like, well, I mean, they're not passing out free money for me being unwell. So like I have to pull my shit together to work in this world, mm -hmm. you know, Um it takes a lot of, a lot of strength to do that when your brain's screaming at you. And no, I, I really don't want to do it this way. And you're like, well, fuck, we got to do it this way because this is how they say that you do it so that you get the, 
you get the prize at the end of the day, which is, you know, money or whatever. Um, and I, uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's really fucked up. <laughs> it's really fucked up. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're called sexuality. And I really like, I think that kind of lady laying down this, this framework um, at the beginning is really important as we kind of dive into um, sexuality and, and gender. Um, and just the very fascinating intersections that I am, that I'm finding that I'm sure you have found uh, as we kind of navigate, um, navigate this, this world. But I think that again, having kind of this general framework of like, you know, what is autism and where are we both coming from when having this conversation, I think is really important. Um, so We've mentioned AFAB, which is assigned um, female at birth. When did you know that you were um, gender diverse? Um, well, so, so the thing was, um, I didn't, un- I didn't really, I didn't have, I don't really recall having a strong emotional attachment to, um, you know, being you know, when I was a child being a girl, I didn't feel, I don't really remember that being a core part of my identity. Um, And I was also raised by a parent that at least when we were toddlers was really trying to be more gender aware. Like she believed in putting kids in reasonable clothes that they could play in regardless of whatever their sex is. And so, cause there were a lot of like kids, um, like my mom remembers like when I was in preschool and kindergarten that some little girls were like decked out in frills and shoes they couldn't run in and she was like I want my kid to be able to play to navigate the world and she also like I'm I have two younger brothers and she would put them in my hand-me-downs and they would be and some parents would be like oh are you sure those are girl clothes and she's like no they're children clothes like they're just going to get them dirty anyway it doesn't matter but a lot of that sort of gender renegade stuff kind of went out the window when puberty happened because then it was like okay now it's time do we need to be a grown-up we need to do this that and the other and that's when I started to really rebel against the label of girl because it just felt like suddenly all these social obligations were crashing down on my head and I had no idea how to navigate any of them and it didn't help either that at the time what I was told was well in order to be social, you need to do what the other kids are doing. So if you just so happen to be in a classroom where maybe all the kid, maybe all the girls in your class want to go to the mall or whatever, well, now you have to go to the mall too. But I had unaddressed sensory issues. So the mall was hell. And so it was just like this presumption of, well, now puberty has happened. Now you have to start doing X, Y, and Z. And I didn't understand what was going on. And so um, because I'd had all this intervention for things like tying my shoes and like talking on phones, I just thought that gender was a thing you performed. So I just thought, oh, I'll just go to the gender therapist and learn how to perform my gender. And it turns out that everyone around me just expected me to get it just act like a girl, be interested in makeup, be interested in boys, be interested in wearing skirts and going out at night to parties. And I wasn't. And so I started like unraveling and picking at the question of what is gender. And to my frustration, (laughs) 
there was no definition of gender. All cultures were doing something differently in different times and places. And that's what sort of started that gender questioning process. The other piece was because of my language delays, I didn't actually take any language classes. I mean, I think I took a class on like Latin in like sixth grade or something. Um, but in high school and in college, I had exemptions from the language requirement. So to fill it, they would have this list because, again, the um, ADA passed in 1990 when I was three. Not well enforced a lot of the times, but that's a separate conversation. Um, but per that, I was given a list of classes to replace the language requirement. And interestingly enough, the classes that were usually on there were media studies, art history, and gender or queer theory classes. So I actually wound up taking a number of queer theory and media study and art history just to fulfill my language. And that's also how I got further on that gender journey. And interestingly, I remember in college, there was more talk about trans women than trans men. And it was usually framed as like, you were born, like, it was a very binary version of trans, where it was like, you were definitely born wanting to do all of the stereotypical stuff on the other end of the spectrum. So it wasn't until I actually dated someone who was um, trans, and they gave me a bunch of books and resources and then that's when I started. So it was like different steps along the way. Um, but it definitely took me much longer. And it would have been a lot easier if I had just been given better education overall from a young age and had more diverse role models. I still think there's a large problem with a complete absence of full representation in media. Right now, we have just crumbs. And we really need way more stories, way more diverse perspectives, because otherwise, if you can't see yourself, then how do you know that you exist? <laughs> so. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's definitely the thing that you, we've been hearing a lot, a lot, a lot recently, right? With, um, with Black Lives Matters. Um, and then, I mean, I feel like the disability justice movement has always been there but like, it feels like it's getting even louder and louder, which is amazing, right? And we're talking about how this representation, it matters, it matters so very much. And being able to, you know, see someone that looks like you in, in media, or at the very least, a semblance of you is important because how do you know if you exist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was just reading an interesting article the other day that was saying, like, why are all so many, why do we have so many lesbian movies that are set in the past? Like the 18th century and all of that, like I know, you know, petticoats and all that, it's fun. And, you know, who doesn't like a good historical drama? But why is it that whenever we want to do a queer story, especially when it centralizes women, we either erase the sex piece or we put it in some like historical time period where everyone had, was repressed and had to like go around and having these secret interactions. And I think that's a good question. Like, I do think that there's a certain kind of gatekeeping that happens where in order to make a movie or a TV show, unless you're deciding to like put it up on your own website, you have to go through all of these people just to get your content out there. And so all of these people have their own ideas about what stories should we be telling, whose perspective should we be giving? Um, you know, sort of a slight tangent, but that whole conversation around the whole um, Sia's new movie. Oh, boy, yeah. Music, yeah, yeah, that entire 
I don't even know. Like there's layers of mess. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, who greenlit this? Like this was not like a one day project. This was like multiple people worked on this. Multiple people said, yeah, this is a good idea. (laughs) Yep. There were several steps on this train to stop it. Right. You're just like, this just didn't get like, backdoored in somewhere you know where someone's just like whoa how did you get in here that's not what happened there and then the the defensiveness of 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 sia online like the there is a very um very interesting thread between her and an autistic actor where the actor's like why didn't you use someone that was autistic you know i'm an autistic actor and sia's response was maybe you're not a good actor and you're just like, well, everything that you say after this point is now shit. Like, no, like, and like there, I don't know how you recover from that. I don't think you do recover from that. It also puts the actress, the actress is someone I, I believe is like, she's worked with Sia like numerous years as a, as a child. And mm-hmm. so has basically been kind of groomed by Sia to be like this next big thing. And it puts her in a really awkward position. Now she's forever tied to this. And um, it's it's really, really unfortunate. And the movie's up for a golden a couple of Golden Globe uh, nominations. It's really gross, right? It's super gross. Um, and then it's definitely kind of framed in a, um, we call it the, the in, in, in black, the black community, we call it kind of the magic Negro trope, right? And that is, we're having kind of the the magic disability trope, the magic Mm -hmm. autism trope where, you know, the autistic character, you know, comes in and does the menstrual dance for everyone. And then, you know, everyone learns a lesson and it's beautiful. And then we, and we back out Mm -hmm. and it's really unfortunate to see, to see that. Um, And just, you know, kind of the internalized ableism happening in this, in this situation too, because it is, uh, apparently Sia is neurodivergent also, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's all these layers, all these layers of of bullshit, you know, mm-hmm. to wade through. And you're and you're right, right? Like this idea of like this project could have been stopped at any time. But that it goes back to this representation. It goes back to who's making who's making the decisions? Who like is this un- again, is this is this frame, who is deciding the framework in which the lens that this is being seen through? And if it's being seen through the lens of cis, het, neurotypical white men as the majority who are making these final calls because they have the money to throw at the project to make the project go, then of course they're not going to be like, oh, you shouldn't do that. They'd be like, "Oh, how thoughtful of it is it of, of you to create an autistic character for this story? How how generous? How how amazing for you? Look at that. You know, we we smell golden globe here. This feels like a feel good story. Good job. I I feel like there was a lot of pats on the back, mm-hmm. you know, in these meetings of representation matters. Good job. Look at we did it. Well, and what's interesting about also about the representation piece is like, if you think about it, when was the last time in just the last 20 years, 
um, that we saw a non-white autistic as a main character. And, and we could even just, and just lower the bar even more whether or not they were played by an autistic because the only one that most people know about is from community and the way community treated that character was at least in the last few seasons um there were two scenes in particular that i just felt did not age well at all on that show and i don't really feel like when people talk about community they usually talk about it as you know in a as sort of this cult classic and it, I mean it's it has a lot of pluses and minuses to it but I just think that I very rarely see any sort of dialogue about how Abed was treated and about how we still have pretty much no representation of non-white autistics it's pretty much overwhelmingly white and it's overwhelmingly from either inspiration porn or it's just so poorly handled that it just becomes, um, yeah, it just becomes almost um, minstrel. Yeah, that word you used earlier. So, so can you explain what the what the term um, inspiration porn is? Well, inspiration porn, I mean, the way I understand it is um, where a disabled or neurodiverse individual pretty much just exists to provide inspiration um, to uh, non-disabled or non-neurodiverse individuals where they don't actually, they're not the actual center of the story. They're just simply there to help, you know, I don't know, whatever the end message is. Remember the goodness of Christmas or or whatever. It's meant to be inspiring, but you're not actually a person because actual people are complex and multidimensional and don't just exist to be, you know, help the another person on their life journey, which is often how disabled people are treated. They're either invisible or they're accessories. I mean, yeah. And you're not wrong there at all. Um, I'm really glad that you brought up Sia because that that's that's been really heavily on my mind here recently. Just how far that went and is continuing to go. Um, I'm, and I'm I yeah talking about the uh, about uh, gender diversity. I think is is very fascinating in terms of of like autistic folks and uh, neurodivergent folks. Um, they so there was recently a um, a study um, that was done in the Netherlands surrounding um, folks with autism and uh, and being gender diverse, and the study showed that one of the most frequently cited studies here was that 15% of autistic adults in the Netherlands identified as trans or non-binary. The percentage is higher among people assigned female at birth than among people assigned male. And um, in a study, it's a 2018 study in the United States, 6.5% of autistic adolescents and 11.4% autistic adults said that they wish to be the gender opposite of what they had been assigned at birth compared to just three to about 5% of the general population here in the US. And I just think that's really fascinating. Yeah, and I think uh, one framework I find useful when talking about this is uh, the charmed circle, 
or that idea that each culture has sort of this hierarchy of what is and is not um, socially ideal or socially acceptable sexual acts and and uh, sexual identities. And so you kind of have like, you know, the main sort of circle. And then you sort of have things outside the circle. And the further you get from the center of the circle, the more social stigma there is on it. And so I think what's interesting is that there's all this conversation about gender diversity and autism, but there isn't really anyone asking the question, well, still, you know, why are some people straight? Why are some people cis? It's just sort of taken as a given that you have straight and cis as sort of the default and anything that's not that becomes, oh, a puzzle to be solved. And, you know, I think that, I, I mean, I think, you know, asking why is a fun question. You know, why is the sky blue? You know, all of that. But I think the question of, well, why is this person trans? You know, sure, that can be an interesting question. But I think more pertinent is how do we best support them? And what we know is that the best way to support someone is to let them wear the clothes they want to wear, to use the names they want to call themselves, and to give them places where they can do basic biological needs, like going to the bathroom or eating without being facing a lot of harassment and assault. Um, and I think that, you know, sure, asking the question of like, why is any of us a gender? Why do any of us do what we do? You know, interesting and pertinent, but we also need to just help people have quality of life. And I think that too many people or so many people have absorbed this charmed circle of, well, we're just, the default is this and anything that's not this is either must have been taught or it's just some sort of oddity to be studied. It ignores the fact that there's enormous amount of diversity in humans in general, in terms of sexual expression, sexual behaviors, sexual preferences. I mean, you look across cultures, across time and space, there's a thousand and one ideas about how to comport yourself in a relationship. And so I think that rather than trying to focus all a lot of energy on trying to figure out the why, I think it's better to say, how do we best support? And um, I also think that there's this ableist attitude of disabled people are either completely asexual, they have no sexuality, they're not sexually desirable, or they're too childlike or impulsive or aggressive or whatever, and therefore their sexuality needs to be controlled externally by, a, by some sort of figure. And I think that we need to really unpack that and realize that... Um, <laughs> because there's so there's a lack of good sexual and romantic education a lot of people disabled or not sometimes make really bad choices and that you don't need and you can be perfectly able-bodied perfectly cis het whatever and still commit atrocious sexual crimes which many cis het people do <laughs> and yet no one is trying to figure out you know I don't know, the origin story of cisness or, you know, all of that. And so I think that um, when looking at gender diversity and autism, we have to be really careful that we're not moving from the unspoken assumption of this is a deviant deviation from a norm. We should just say like, oh, humans are really diverse. And for many cultures, for millennia, we've had state intervention on some level, explicit, implicit laws, social customs, what have you, that have strongly controlled and curtailed human sexual expression. Um, the state has a vested interest 
in who's reproducing and how they're reproducing. You know, this is getting into things like eugenics and, you know, why is it that in our legal code only two people can get married? You know, why is it that three adults can't all sign a legally binding document granting them similar rights? You know, again, like we're not getting off into like a legal debate and all that, but the whole idea is like we enshrine certain relationships and certain kinds of sexuality and then we treat everything else as sort of oddities to be explained rather than the main thing should be consent and compassion and everything else is you know it works itself if not works itself out it's um that those should be the main components of any relationship is there consent is there compassion um also power dynamics <laughs> We don't talk enough about power dynamics and how if you spent your entire childhood being told either explicitly or implicitly that you are deficient, this definitely shapes what you think of yourself and what kind of love you think you deserve. And we do know that autistic individuals face a higher rate of bullying, predation, domestic violence, sexual assault. And a lot of that isn't because they're like socially unaware. It's because non-autistics take advantage or attack autistics because they themselves have ableism and unexamined beliefs around sexuality. And that we need to do just as much work with non-autistics around sexuality as we do with autistics. It's just that because autistics are framed as the deficient ones in this conversation, they are the ones that get a lot of the like, well, why are you like this? And how can we make you less like this? And, you know, I think we should instead shift to just focusing on, you know, does this person understand how power operates? <laughs> Does this person understand consent? And when I say understand, there's different developmental levels of understanding. You know, even a three-year-old or even, you know, an infant can understand power dynamics. You're just understanding it differently than, say, a 25 or a 30-year-old or what have you. Because when you're an infant, you're aware on some level that you can't fight your caregivers. You can't run away from them. So if you're frightened or overwhelmed, you disassociate out. Now, as an adult, you might have more awareness of the process that's happening, but it's the same fundamental process that's happening, just about a different level of awareness. So I think that when we talk about gender diversity, we really need to be careful that we're not falling into um, some of this, yeah, all of this mess that we've inherited <laughs> in terms of ableism and all that. I mean, absolutely. And I think that you, you touch on like so many important points there. And the one being right, that we get these numbers and these things that are like, well, it starts to be like, why are these folks deviating from this, this, the, the standard Why are And so, and it's like, why is that information important? And what are you going to do with that information? Mm -hmm. Cause it feels like that, information can be weaponized and used to make the numbers smaller. Well, now we know why this happens. And then, and you also talk about eugenics and that pops up a lot, especially when we're talking about disabled folks. Um, and I actually had the, I had the honor of speaking on a panel uh, recently uh, with Planned Parenthood of New York. It was a disability justice and um, reproduction, uh, reproductive justice panel and it was specifically uh we started getting into like why disability justice and restore and um um reproductive justice movements are having issues with each other and it's because 
pro-lifers kind of, kind of, kind of threw up a hell mary that sticks, and and uh, and re and uh, reproductive justice folks haven't figured out a way to counter counter that, and that is the argument is well, if you want to have an abortion because you know that your the child that you're going to have is going to be born with a disability, you should have the right to be able to terminate it. Mm-hmm. And pro-lifers are like, that sounds awful like eugenics to us. And there's been no counter argument really from the, you know, the, um, the reproductive justice folks and disability justice folks are like, you need to say something about that. You need to say something about it. Um, and it was just a really fascinating uh, panel to be a part of. Um, I mean, I have, like, there was the relief of getting my diagnosis of, of BPD. But then, like I said, there was this anger portion. And then there was this other portion of it that, uh, as I started to do more research about the my uh, about my diagnosis, that really scared me. And that was, there was a lot of stuff out there about how folks that are like me shouldn't, can't have relationships, shouldn't have relationships, shouldn't reproduce, shouldn't, shouldn't, there was all these shoulds and by the time shouldn't. And when you, when you, when I stepped away from him, just like, so I should s- sit in a room. I should sit in a room. Okay. She sit in a room and I should maybe wait for someone to bring me food and water and I should sit in my room. Like that's what it really felt like that. Like I wasn't fit for human consumption <laughs> and, and no one wanted to consume it. And I was like, well, that's great. Um, and you know, you read some of this research about folks with autism and it, it feels the same way reading, reading articles about parents mourning the child they wish they had. And I'm like, you, <laughs> what are, you still have a child. Like, I don't understand. It's really, it's very fascinating. Um, but I think the, the point that you make about asking these whys, it makes me want to ask, ask the question of why, what are you going to do with that information? What, what is there to be gained from this information besides some understanding? Okay, so what do we do with the understanding? And if we're not supporting folks, then with this information, if we're not helping folks be able to live their best life, as opposed to what is the life that we think that folks should live. I talk a lot about um, civility culture in, in our society and how like, if something's not said the right way, you lose the argument. Mm-hmm. Even if you're right, if you're too passionate, if you have too much emotion, there's a way, there is definitely a, a you know, a way to um, say some really horrific things to people, but the tone is correct. Mm-hmm. The word choice is correct. And they keep their air quotes composure. And uh, I just civility really drives me nuts. And I think that's part of what the trap that autistic folks and other neurodivergent folks fall into is that 
the rules of engagement were excluded from those sometimes because we are not going to say the thing the right way or we're not going to, our brain's not gonna process that information the right way and what comes out is not the right way. It's not the right, it's not right, it's not right, it's not right. To the point that I guess we should just go sit in our room. <laughs> just, just gonna sit here because what are we supposed to say? It's pretty, it's, it's really fucked up. Um, it's very fucked up. So what did you like? So how did the topic of like, how did your parents talk to you about sex? Did they talk to you about sex? I mean, so my parents were, I mean, my dad traveled a lot and he was definitely, he definitely inherited a lot of Catholic based shame around the body. He was not really into talking about the body at all. Um, even something like surgery, he does not want to even talk about that. Um, my mom was very much a big uh, fan of the uh, book model of parenting where you buy a lot of books either for yourself or for the kid. And then you have some degree of conversation, but a lot of it is kind of like, oh, here's a book, you know, here's some more information. And so, um, and I also think the problem with the way a lot of times people talk about sex is that they immediately jump to thinking of some kind of like Pornhub-esque scene. And they forget that sex is a really complex psychosocial behavior activity, however you want to call it, and that there's a lot of different components. And there's a lot of components that go into sex that are applicable to other aspects of life, like boundaries. Do you know what your boundaries are? Can you stand up for your boundaries? Um, do you know what you like? Do you know what you don't like? Um, just, you know, basic things of like, do you know how to communicate in some capacity with other people? And I think what happened for both myself and for a lot of autistic individuals is that we wind up being taught um, social support that's really about memorization. It's not about embodiment. It's more about, okay, here, memorize these activities or memorize these behaviors. And so rather than learning how to recognize and articulate boundaries or developing a communication system that works for you or learning how to be embodied, you instead just memorize like, oh, whenever you go on a date, you pull out a chair for someone or just a bunch of memorizations that may or may not really work for you and may or may not be applicable in all cultural settings. But, you know, there's still this preference for that checklist approach. Um, I remember, I think it was like a year or two ago, there was a Netflix show about um, autism and dating. And I read a review of it because, you know, those things, I was just like, this looks terrible. This is probably going to be terrible. And then I read a review of it and they were talking about how one way they offered support for these individuals was this class where they were just, you know, taught rules around how to do dating. But again, no real discussion of the fact that, for example, and this kind of also veers a little into the trans piece, um, your interoception or that sense of like, what am I feeling internally? For a lot of people, both autistic and non-autistic, they have no, they don't really know how to go inside. They don't know how to go internally. They don't know how to be both internal and external. And they don't really know really how to articulate values. They know when things feel good or bad, 
but they don't really have a nuanced language for both exploring the internal landscape or really articulating it. And I think what happens when, when you experience that is that either you go on autopilot and you just follow what society says you should, but for some people you can't go on autopilot because what society says you should do just does not fit for whatever reason. And so, um, yeah, so I feel like the sexual education I got was on the one hand, very anatomically oriented. Um, and then there was also a lot of shame and religious, well, not silliness. The abstinence only is um, toxic and awful and should really just go away. And we need to stop treating sex as like, oh, this thing we do in the bedroom and like, no, it's an activity we can choose to engage in. It can be a number of different activities and it requires you being able to be embodied and present, which many people are not able to do. And then they wind up in couples counseling and they're like, well, I don't know, I just can't communicate with this other person. And I'm like, well, yeah, you're both checked out of your bodies. <laughs> and so, yeah, and I also feel like we need to start sexual education from literally infancy onward. And like for, you know, and again, it's not about, you know, whatever weird Pornhub place people go in their heads. It's about, do you know the names for your body? Do you know your boundaries? Can you articulate yourself? And I feel that with communication, there's often this overemphasis on verbal communication. You have to speak a certain way. That civility piece you said, you have to speak a certain way and you have to use the right words. And, you know, I think we need to create a wider cultural base of options for communication. Because I, for myself, and I know for other neurodiverse people, yeah, when we're at work or in public or what have you, we can perform and do the whole verbal thing. But when we're in private, we might switch to other forms of communication that might be a mix of like writing or speaking or, you know, I tend to do a lot of like chirping and other noises like that. Um, I watched a lot of nature shows as a kid. Uh, I partly blame that. <laughs> Because, you know, I feel like there's sometimes you can't find the right word. So, you know, a chirp might work better. But I've learned that you do not do that with most people. I've had to train myself to speak in a very specific way, which a lot of marginalized people experience. You're having to put on some degree of a mask just to get your foot in the door. And then once you're now in the room, now you have to be constantly... <laughs> doing this. And then if you're autistic, then people say things like, well, you're so verbal. You're clearly not autistic like my child. And you're like, yeah, you are not seeing, you know, you don't see me outside of work. You're not living in my apartment with my husband and I. So <laughs> just because I can perform professionalism for you doesn't mean I'm like that all the time. And in fact, if I were, I'd probably be burned out way more often. It's a, the performative piece is huge. I mean, that's, it's, it comes up so much. Um, you don't look like you are, you don't act like you are. Um, it's like, you wouldn't let me in the door if I didn't have, air quotes, have my shit together in this moment. And it is exhausting to carry all that. And I do like the piece that you talk about in terms of, uh, you know, nonverbal communication. Um I, I definitely noticed, especially with COVID and being, you know, kind of, you know, a pandemic and being on lockdown in my home, that I am becoming a lot more aware of what, like, my 
what my access needs are and like, and things that I didn't realize would make life more comfortable for me in terms of like communicating and getting the things I need and, and getting work done. I feel like I've gotten so much more work done during this time than I've ever in my life. And that it's been less uh, draining and stressful because I've been able to be like, look, I got to turn off my camera right now. Look, I need to, you know, I'm just going to sit here and listen. And if someone else could take notes, I'm just going to, um, I'm just going to sit here and just steady stream of consciousness, everything that's in my head right now. Um, and it's been really helpful to be able to be like, this is what's happening and this is what's going on. And I am also a no noise person. I just, I talk a lot and it's exhausting and it's just the nature of my work. I have to talk a lot. And when I'm home and in my space and my preference would be to just make cat noises and point and, and, and literally knock things off the table that I don't want in front of me right now. It's very cat-like in my house. Um, and my partners are very, very in tune to what my needs are. Um, which is really great. And I, I feel like I'm now more in tune with what my needs are. And I also appreciate you talking about embodiment. Um, this has come up a lot in sexuality. Uh, we actually did an interview um, that will be uh, coming out in, in March. Um, it's our March episode with uh, a Tantra um, instructor and she does this whole series on in, in, uh, involving embodiment work, but why it's so important to be embodied. And the fact that like, it goes beyond just like, oh, well, you know, folks that are, you know, neurodivergent should need to be embodied. This is, everyone is disembodied. <laughs> like everyone is just in various states of like, not knowing, not like, Homo homeostasis has not been achieved, <laughs> you know, like we're just kind of out here. And it's, I mean, I think definitely before the pandemic, I'm sure I, I feel like it was probably a lot worse before the pandemic. I feel like now folks are really kind of thinking about it. They have more time to kind of sit at home and sit with themselves. And I know I've done a lot more self-reflection, I think, than I've ever done in my entire life. But this idea of, of, of embodiment and being in your body and is it's really really wild and how like our society is definitely one that uh is definitely built around the idea that you have to earn pleasure you have to mm -hmm. earn self-care you have to earn relaxation and rest as opposed to no that's a need being able taking care of yourself is a that's a need that needs to be filled right um people need to rest people need to have downtime um but like you know you think about work right i you know i have to work x amount of hours in order to get vacation time and i earn that vacation time and then i and then i'm allowed to rest right well um, even then when you're on vacation for most people, they never really fully log off work because they're still fielding emails. Or if you do take that vacation, now you're no longer eligible for that promotion. So there's all kinds of ways that our culture has really 
overly centralized work and also not critically unpacked it. Like I find it really interesting the way people talk about how like it's so important to do these interventions because how will you live independently or work? And for me, like, and I mean, I think that one, all humans strive for some kind of meaning in their life, some kind of meaning and some kind of structure. And I also think that for many individuals, they have just been, you know, um, trained to think that it's normal that you will de devote the vast majority of your life for most individuals to making money for other people and that you effectively get the crumbs that a few people at the top have a lot. And I think that there's a real urgent need that, that um, as a culture, we need to have about the role of work in our lives and what work means. Because I think the fact that people are aware of that if we actually offered universal healthcare insurance or universal education and all, or had actually robust worker protection, then people wouldn't work. And I'm like, well, that's really interesting then because you're basically saying that our entire system of work is based on a, co on a coercive, violent model of it's either this or death. And I think that, you know, if people were not working, they would probably be doing a weird hobby or volunteering. But most humans, when given the choice, don't just want to sit around the house. I mean, we saw this with COVID. People are going stir crazy right from the beginning. And for so many individuals, though, they've been taught like this is the structure of your life. You go to this highly regimented school for a set amount of years, and then you go to this highly regimented workplace, unless you're in the arts, and then you have to expect, you know, poverty, but you'll be full of joy, so it's fine. And then you supposedly will have some time at the end of your life where, like, yeah, your body will be failing and you'll be in a lot of pain, but hey, you'll now have, you know, quote unquote, retirement. But most people don't even have that anymore. And we've so normalized overworking, being in chronic pain, and it's just sometimes bewildering to me that more people are not like, wait a minute, this entire system is making everyone sick, and it's making everyone really unwell. And, uh, and the people who get hit upside the head the most are the people who are most marginalized. Like when they, I remember a couple weeks ago, there was like a job report thing that came out and it was like all of the job losses were jobs held by women and all the job gains were ones held by men. And I'm like, this is a little like, what is going on? And in, in the autism world, there's such this talk about like, well, we have to do this because otherwise they'll never go to work for 40 hours a week. And I'm like, why should we be doing that anyway? <laughs> Why can't we create collective interdependent communities? <laughs> right? Absolutely. I don't, I don't understand it. I'll never understand it. I'll never get it. And I will fight someone <laughs> over it. Like this idea of, um, I have to work until I'm old and then I get to have a break but I am old. Right. And you've also not been given appropriate health care and the health care that you have received. So, I mean, just from my own experience as a massage therapist, from what I've heard from other individuals who come to see me either for themselves or their kid is that most doctors are not teaching individuals about the importance of fascia. Mm -hmm. 
So, for example, if we talk about sexuality, a lot of times people will say things like, well, have you tried deep breathing? But if you try to do deep breathing before you like do anything, but your diaphragm is completely frozen and you're trying to force your diaphragm to move, that'll probably just give you an anxiety attack. Or we tell people, oh, have you tried doing kegels? But for most people, the problem is that your pelvic floor is too overly toned, it's too tight, or your psoas is too restricted. So now you're just adding extra tension to an already too tense system. So, you know, this isn't to say that all therapists or all doctors should be experts on fascia, but you should know enough to let people know that like, no, you don't need to be in pain the majority of the time. You don't need to just expect that sex will just sometimes hurt or that you will need to pop a pill whenever you can't get an erection. Like those are things that are connected to the nervous system and to fascia. And that I just think that when it comes to like a sexuality, especially there's a lot of the like top 10 weird positions to get yourself into, but less of a discussion of like, well, have you tried just slowing down <laughs> and checking in instead of trying to rush through and do 20 different novel things? Like, what if we slowed down? What if we worked on our fascia before we engaged in sexuality? So that way we're not dealing with a hyper unpainful system. Cause like, so many grown-ups like that common joke of like you go to massage someone and they just feel like a rock well you know that's going to have an impact on your sexuality on some way or another so yeah i just find that this complete and utter pulsacity of actual rest and this tendency toward you know we're going to treat each problem in the body as if it's in some sort of vacuum and not connected to all these other parts um you know, and then we get to old, we get, you know, to retirement age and we can't fully walk and we, you know, have all these other cognitive and emotional and physical problems that aren't necessarily part of aging. They're from a lack of health care and Absolutely. a lack of rest. Absolutely. You use this for uh, the, this word fascia. Can you explain it to me what that is? Oh, can you oh. hear me? Bailey's you. Oh, sorry. Um, they're doing something outside my building. I don't know what. Um, could you repeat that? So, uh, you used the word uh, fascia. Can you explain to me what that means? Oh, yeah. Um, so fascia is, um, let me, so it's this um, interconnected connective tissue that runs throughout your entire body. It's, um, you can actually look up like stuff like anatomy trains and you can see like these different uh, fascial lines. Um, and uh, let's see, I'm trying to think. Yeah, that's where it is. Um, so I was just trying to think where I have a more formalized definition. Um, uh, there we go. So it acts like this web that runs throughout your body and it's deeply interconnected with your nervous system. It's a key way of communicating to your brain what's going on with your body. And so, especially with trauma, you often see trauma in a restricted diaphragm and in a restricted psoas. And we've also known since like William Reich and the Orgasmatron, um, so the early 1900s, that certain kinds of trauma actually show up in certain somatic holding patterns. And that there's often a direct connection between, um, you know, uh, chronic headaches, chronic hip pain, chronic back pain, and unaddressed um, 
emotional wounds. And that a lot of times we've learned to think of like, well, we have psychiatric problems and we have body problems, but those are actually one and the same. They're just different manifestations of the same thing. Um, and we also know that different cultures tend to talk about both physical and emotional pain differently. Some cultures tend to use more somatic language. They say less like I'm sad and more like my stomach is upset or what have you. So that's the other thing is that if you're expecting people to use a certain psychiatric language, but that's not culturally how they usually express pain, then you can wind up missing acute physical or emotional problems because they're not, again, speaking the right language or using the right words. So. Yep. It wasn't until fairly recently that I realized that I had been carrying a lot of stomach pain due to stress, like just stomach completely messed up because of like of stress and just like this idea of tiptoeing around everyone and everything all the time. And which is really fascinating to people because I have uh, a very outgoing personality. I speak, I speak up, but if you pay attention, you realize I'm not actually speaking up for myself. Do a really good job of being loud and speaking up for other people, but I piss poor at <laughs> speaking up for myself. And so that was where a lot of that was going was right into my gut. And I said, so I was always complaining about having a stomach ache always all the time. Um, I think that's really, and also um, Soma means body and just, Again, we talk about embodiment, we talk about these things. This is really important. Um, and I think it's, as a society, especially here in the West, right? Um, we praise logic so highly over, um, over emotion that if someone is speaking with logic, it doesn't matter how freaking wrong they are, if it sounds logical, but then you have this person over here saying, I would really like it if you'd stop killing me and my people. I would really like it if you could wear a fucking mask because we have folks that are disabled and that really want to get back to work also, but can't in the society. And the idea of just telling folks that if you're disabled and you have, or you have pre-existing conditions, will you just fucking stay home? That's some privilege ass shit. And every time that argument's thrown out, I'm like, well, what are you going to give those people staying the fuck home then? What are you going to do for those people? And they don't want to talk about that because that's socialist bullshit. And I'm just like, you don't make any fucking sense. And I will keep using, I will cuss you out over this. And you can be like, wow, that person's really irrational. And I'd still think you're a fucking asshole. And I guess we're not getting anywhere, you know, but it's re it's such a bullshit thing. It's very bullshit. Mm -hmm. um, so, we have some, we have a little bit of time left and I really wanted to talk about um, autism and uh, sensory um, when it comes to BDSM. I really wanted to talk about that. Um, how did you find BDSM? Um, well, so the funny thing was um, uh, I had a lot of, um, I, uh, I kind of experienced uh, what a lot of uh, autistic individuals experience, which is uh, that middle school cliff where you're sort of, you know, I'm sort of bumbling along. I'm more or less in step with my peers socially. Um, I'm 
you know, I have my own struggles. And then suddenly something shifted around sixth grade, where suddenly everyone became interested in dating. Boys got suddenly really weird about touching or sleeping in the same bed. And I was just not there yet. I was completely baffled. And this bafflement led to a lot of anxiety and aggression behavior. And so after my first year at high school, which was just a nightmare trash fire because the administration or the teachers at that school did not know what to do with me. They just did not know what to do with a traumatized, confused autistic that did not understand why suddenly all the social rules changed overnight. And so I got sent to a boarding school and um, at the boarding school. And what was funny is that I think the idea was that I would go to boarding school and that I would sort of grow up a little and then I would go to college. And rather than making me more normal, <laughs> boarding school actually made me more quirky because at boarding school, um, I went from abstinence-only education to suddenly a cohort of kids who had a very different background and sexuality. And so in my boarding school I went to, there were several kids who came from KIPP academies and from really bad neighborhoods in New York. And I had grown up in a very wealthy white neighborhood. And so spending time with kids who came from a completely different racial and economic background, because there were also kids from international countries and kids from different states. Um, and so I was suddenly hearing a whole different story around sex. It went from abstinence only and anatomy to like, well, do you know about um, you know, do you know about anal? Do you know about BDSM? And that's how I often found out about a lot of stuff about sex was because I was suddenly in a very different social environment. And, you know, I was a very um, academically oriented kid and that I really liked researching stuff. And so I didn't really fully understand the social stigma around BDSM. I just found it really interesting. And so I started engaging in BDSM without really understanding that's what I was doing or really understanding the full sort of emotional weight of my actions because again I was kind of like a kid that had been told well you can either have spinach or you can have like shoes and then I suddenly find out oh there's this entire candy store that's open <laughs> and I didn't know what any of the proper names were for anything and the last several years have been sort of this process of self-education and finding the language and the words for what I was looking for. But I just kind of launched myself into BDSM in part because it just felt familiar. And it was also, you know, as an adult, it was one of the few social spaces that does not centralize intoxication. It is not about getting shit-faced in a room full of strangers <laughs> and then rubbing them. Because, I mean, this is how I see a lot of the club scene. I know many people miss the club scene and love it a lot. But for me, bars and clubs are like, okay, so I'm going to go to this dark room. I'm going to get really drunk on something that's very expensive. And then I'm going to have to, like, touch a bunch of strangers. That was very strange to me. Whereas a lot of BDSM spaces, especially with the munches, um, and like uh, TNG events, it felt less out of control. It felt more like I could actually socialize and talk to people. Um, 
And I know I've had a lot of mis- mixed experiences within BDSM circles, but overall, there just wasn't a lot of social spaces I could really go to and not be sensorily overwhelmed. I mean, it's like BDSM spaces, book clubs, poetry reading events, like there's not really a lot of adult events that don't involve a lot of sensorily overwhelming intoxication. So I kind of stumbled backwards into BDSM and I've now been sort of trying to gain the vocabulary, gain a better understanding of like, what actually am I trying to do here? (laughs) Instead of just sort of running around being like, oh, look, we have options other than spinach and shoes. Like, (laughs) so yeah. Yeah, I have, I definitely found uh, some kinship in the BDSM community. There's a lot of neurodivergent folks in the BDSM scene. There's a lot. Um, Also in the polyamorous community, there's a lot. Um, And I think that's very fascinating, right? That we talk about um, autism being on a spectrum. We talk about gender being on a spectrum. We talk about sexuality being on a spectrum. It's almost as if things aren't just black and white. So there's there's some gray um and also i think that bdsm is fascinating because there there is some structure there are some rules rules of engagement um which is kind of helpful when you're someone that's just like i don't understand mm-hmm. and they're like here are some here are these some rules to you know for engagement but also this is about you being you and finding like your bliss and you're like, as opposed to what someone else's definition of, of bliss is or, or fulfillment is, it's just like, here's a basic structure to help you maybe find that road. And I found that really helpful. Um, just also, I just, I, kinky folks just have, are the intersection of like BDSM, BDSM kink and like, again, polyamory and like neurodivergency and like, nerd culture and like all these different things that I'm interested in. Um, it was really, really nice to feel like you, that I also kind of fell backwards into, into kink and BDSM. Also it was as someone that my, like my anxiety and, and things like that manifest in very painful ways. Um, like right now, you can't see because I'm doing it off camera, but my hands are really sore. I'm really stressed out about a thing and my hands get really sore uh, because of that. And so there's a lot of hand wringing. Um, but I found BSM, it was just a way to um, feel something other than that, right? But also it reminded me to like, it. there's embodiment to be found. I definitely, I started in the community as a, as a bottom, as someone that receives um, stimulation from someone. And that was because I needed to feel my body. I felt like my body wasn't my own. I got into the BDSM scene shortly after I had my child. And that, when I talk about not feeling like your body belongs to you, like you become, you're a walking feed bag, you know, in a way. And, and, also, like, I know that I was probably, um, I was emotionally stunted when I had my son. So I felt younger than what I was. And so there was just kind of this, like, who am I? 
I would love to be someone, I want to be this child, this kid's mom, but also who am I as a person? I don't even know who the fuck I am. And now I have this kid. And so BDSM really allowed me to take a moment and be like, this is what it feels like to be in my body when I'm receiving this. This is what it feels like to be in my body receiving that. This is what it feels like to be in my body when I'm doing that to someone else and I'm watching their body react. And so even now, years later, I've been actively involved in the BDSM community for about, oh fuck, eight, maybe nine years now. Um, a lot, it's, it's, it's about the power dynamic, but it's also about connecting. It's like, this is what my body is doing and this is what your body is doing and this is what our bodies are doing together. And that's really important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also it's this whole idea that I'm not just sitting in my fucking room <laughs> by myself, just waiting waiting for waiting for my neurodivergency to disappear or go away or maybe the world might accept me and it's just it's bdsm has been really helpful but i will also say that like all communities it's got it's it's got its shit it's got its baggage um and a lot of that again is centered around as much as we like to think that because it's a fringe community or what have you, we still, there's still this idea of what is the standard mm-hmm. exists, even in spaces that were created to get away from, you know, the typical or the civil. There's still, there's still this need to assimilate and make others assimilate. I don't know. That feels like some patriarchal bullshit a little bit too. I don't know. Well, I mean, and I think it's interesting is that BDSM is so stigmatized because people look at the imagery and then they get dysregulated and then they get really freaked out. And, you know, from my own experience and from, you know, the research I've done, I would argue that a lot of BDSM is either A, addressing sensory processing issues that have not been previously addressed, or B, it's a lot of like moving stuck trauma in the body or helping with embodiment. And three, I would argue that there is like at least 50%, if not more, is neurodiverse within that community. And I think that, again, going back to that charm circle, like why have we decided that these sexual acts are fine, but these are not, especially since those so-called vanilla sexual acts can be done consensually or not consensually, but then, you know the perception of safety and risk is so skewed for so many people because there is such a paucity of representation. Like even just, and like, not just within BDSM, but like I remember I read a really great term the other day of, um, I forget who said it, uh, skydiving sex, that when you see a lot of uh, lesbian or women on women stuff, a lot of times people have like their hands in the air or it's really gauzy. So even just having vanilla non-heterosexual representation is very lacking and when we do get bdsm it's often this very titillating it's often misrepresented because the whole piece around consent and power is not there and then i also find that when it comes to education for many people there's a barrier in terms of money and time and we need to make sure people are paid for their you know what they're teaching but also the community itself is often struggling And then there's the piece of a lot of parents, I find, 
often have to drop out of the BDSM community because of lack of childcare. And, you know, I don't think we necessarily need to have like a daycare right on the same floors where we're doing scenes, but maybe the building next door or so, like somewhere in some way working as a community to help everyone attend. And that means having really accessible spaces and helping people with transportation and childcare. Cause otherwise what you wind up doing is filtering out until you get to the people people who have the most means to show up on a consistent basis. Exactly. And you know, that piece you said about um, the experience of just having a child, like, um, you know, I was just re I was just learned the other day that, you know, going into the polyvagal theory, um, our vagal nerve, um, part of what the vagal nerve does is that we actually influence the vagal tone of um, our children. And so if the parent has a lot of unprocessed trauma or if their vagal tone, if there's um, hyper or if there's um, high vagal tone, I think it is. Yeah, I'd have to double check that. But basically the point is there's a connection between obstetric violence, gender-based violence, lack of support for parents, and attachment issues. And yet so often we frame attachment issues as the like, oh, what's going on with this one family when really it's like there's a general failure as a culture to really nurture and help families across the board. We just expect people to go through these major life experiences and then just go to work the next day. Mm-hmm. And there really should be more options to help individuals recenter their bodies both the birthing parent and the non-birthing parent. Because for many non-birthing parents, they're like, I feel like a lamp. What can I do to help? Yeah. I don't know what to do. I mean, it's true. I, I think that for a society that uh, really, that's that's just so pro-life driven, they don't, it's pro-birth, right? They want you to have the baby, but then there are no, the resources that are available to um, new parents is abysmal unless you have money and even when you do have money it's still not quite right you know um we want people to have children to create you know bring these these other members of society into society um but we don't want to give them the help that they need to to do that like i said i i i felt like a kid having a kid and i was like 25 like i was older than my mom when i had my kid and i was still just like so what, what are we going to do, buddy? Like, I don't know. And even to this day, I still feel like my child and I are raising each other. I've never been a parent before and uh, they've never been a kid before. And so we're doing on the job training, you know, mm-hmm. and I feel like my goal is to not fuck up my kid. Like my parents fucked me up. He's going to be fucked up in a different way. Like it's like, it'll be entirely something new. You know, it's not, I, I, it's, you know, ending the, the generational trauma is going to end with me and it'll create something different. Um, My kids, the way that my kid responds to trauma and anxiety, you know, and being anxious is very similar to me. And I recognize that, but it's like, well, okay, I need to get a little bit better at how I'm processing that. Um, For people out there who have children that are, um, neurodivergent or who ha- or have autism, um, you know, just in general, if you're a parent in general, sex- 
the sex positive parenting, is it talking about, is it necessarily you putting on like, like you were saying, Jack, putting on Pornhub being like, this is sex. Like, that's not what it is. Right. And also the, the sex talk is not a talk. It's several talks at different points in life. And uh, I cannot stress that enough. It is sex talks. And it may be, it may be a, a very special episode in your house where you sit down and yet, you know, have this whole conversation or it literally can be a conversation in the car on the way, dropping your kid off somewhere. Like the most important thing is making sure that your child knows they can come to you to tell you, right. And that we're creating spaces for our children to um, not receive your judgment, you know, like they didn't ask to be brought here. That's a whole nother topic for another day. Cause I'm, <laughs> I can get real deep into that, right? About the 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 ethics of actually having children, I think is really fascinating. Um, but I, mean, I didn't I didn't consent to debt, y'all. I didn't consent to debt. Um, but it starts early. And I I mean I didn't realize I was actually like teaching my kid about sex. Um as early as I was, but we were really big on um, his autonomy when he was a child. I remember very distinctly as a child being forced to hug people that I did not want to hug. And so I was just like, if, if Gabe does not want to hug anyone, he's not hugging anyone. That's that. And uh, the amount of pushback that we got from the grandparents about that was alarming to me. It was like, you would force someone to hug you? Just because they're little, they're littler than you. And they're saying no. And you don't think that you have to respect their no because they're a tiny person. And that really made me start thinking about my childhood even more. Um, being tickled to the point that I threw up, you know, as a kid, right? Um, like as an adult now, tickling is still a, a hard limit on like my BDSM stuff. Like, I've taken a frying pan to the ass, you know? And as someone's like, I'm going to tickle you. That's like, that is the equivalent of someone saying they're going to stick like hot pokers in my eyes where I'm just like, I just can't, no way. Um, but yeah, it's several conversations. You're going to keep having them and they're, and figuring out ways to make it age appropriate is I think is really important. And the, I honestly, the best place to start is this is your body. And it's okay for you to say no. And if your child is nonverbal, we taught uh, our son how to sign no. And we taught him how to just put his hands up and hold them firm. No. Um, and if people don't respect that, I don't give a fuck if it's grandma or what. They don't get to see your kid until they respect that because you're teaching your kid that it's it's okay because it's grandma. It's okay because it's family. And as we all know, um, sexual assault and molestation is typically from folks that we know. Like, mm -hmm. we got to start early. What is some? What are some pieces of advice that you would offer some parents that are about to have the conversation with kids or going to be having conversations with kids? 
Well, I mean, I think a really big piece is remembering, like you said, that it's not one big conversation and that when you're having these conversations, it's sometimes it might be as direct as your child saying, you know, where do babies come from? And, you know, with stuff like that, you start with the simplest amount of information. Oh, you know, a sperm and an egg makes a baby. And then you see if they want any more information. A lot of times parents will or grownups will sort of try to provide too much without checking in to see, like, well, what is the kid really asking? Um, it might also be like, what media does your child watch? If most of your children's books, movies, music only reference one kind of relationship, then you're effectively teaching your child that there's one kind of way to love. So having a multitude of representations of like, some people grow up and they have, you know, one partner, some people grow up and they have, you know, three, and some grow up and decide to have a queer platonic relationship, like making sure as your children is consuming media, like what's their media diet? And then also like ask them questions, like engage with them. Um, you know, what did you think about this? Like just um, try to find natural ways to be curious and be present and don't try to come in with an agenda or a like today we're going to learn this lesson. Just, you know, be curious. Um, and then also like it's, you know, again, there are certain skills that are important, like, you know, about privacy and about how do we use bathrooms. Um, but also it's really important to teach boundaries. It's really important to let kids know that, yes, you, you can say no, but you can also say yes. And how do we say yes? And helping kids practice saying that. Have kids practice saying things like, well, I said yes to playing this game with you, but now I don't want to do that anymore. So how do I say no? Um, I remember reading um, Peggy, I think, Ornstein, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, and her book on um, boys that she recently wrote. One thing she found was that a lot of them were told, like, you know, don't commit sexual assault, you know, all of this stuff, but they had never been taught how to stand up to their peers. So helping your child know not only their own boundaries and how to articulate it, but like, what if your friends say something that's either ableist or racist or sexist? What if your friends, what if your friend seems to be leading an unconscious person into another room? How would you handle that? And there are different ways to have that conversation. And I think that before you really get into like explicit sex, you can just talk about like, oh, I was playing a game of blocks and then my friend wanted to do a different thing with the blocks and I didn't like it. How do I stand up for myself? So giving kids the tools to push back, to demand better, because when we just let our friends and our coworkers express all these isms, we're effectively saying that we agree with them, that we support them. And so it's not enough to say to kids, well, no means no, and never do this and don't do that. We have to actually help them in the moment because that's really hard when we have to go against our friendship circle, or if we start an activity and then we're like, I don't want to do this anymore. And so learning how to navigate these social situations is really crucial. It's not just about knowing like what goes where and when, it's also everything before it. You know, another example is like, you know, what would you do if, for example, you couldn't access birth control? How would you navigate that? You know, how are we going to have this conversation with people about like, when do we want to have children and how do we know when we want to have children? Like that's also part of the conversation if you're engaging in sexual activity that could result in a child. And so I think that 
people become so focused on the like, we have to make sure that my child doesn't either become a victim or a perpetuator, but being a victim or perpetuator happens outside of sex too. And it's very similar mechanisms. And so I think that there's a whole suite of skills and parents might not have those. If you have your own trauma history, if you didn't have good education around sex, finding resources to educate yourself, or if you don't have the time, find another grown-up that you can send your kid to and be like, you know what, I'm not good at these questions. But this person can be sort of like the proverbial aunt or uncle or neighbor who can provide these resources. I think this idea of like, oh, parenting is you take two adults and you lock them in a house and then they have to do everything is too much. It's just too much, especially since those people are often all working full time and don't have the education they need to really support the next generation. I think we need to move toward a communal collaborative parenting where sometimes maybe sex or cooking or I don't know, outdoor fishing, those are just not your specialities. And if your kid has questions, having someone to turn to is really helpful. That's not the internet. <laughs> Absolutely. There are so many really great tips and we'll be sure to include some of these tips um, on our Patreon for sure. So make sure you subscribe to the Patreon, which is sexuality, S-E-A, that's us in Seattle. And um, thank you so much, Jack. This was really, really great. Um, I'm so glad that we, we did this. We had this conversation. It went places that I didn't expect for it to go, which is what I love the most about this. Um, want to give a shout out to our, uh, our super patron, Anna Armstrong. Thank you so much for supporting sexuality. Make sure you follow us on the Instagram. You'll see that information in the corner at the end of the, um, at the end of the podcast and so make sure that you follow us on the Instagram We're on Twitter. So, uh, check out that link tree link, uh, sexuality, S-E-A. Um, I'm just trying to make sure I cover everything. I covered everything. I am so glad that you're listening and uh, make sure that you spread the word and tell folks about us. We were on the iTunes, the Stitcher, we're on all the things. So, you know, listen, thank you. Have a great day, evening, night, wherever you are. Make sure you stay hydrated. And also it is okay to not be okay because this shit is definitely not okay. Thank you. Thank you.